Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To all my bed crimers, a happy Sunday. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching the video, if you find you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash the like button. It's a free way you can help me. Now, let's get started. It's a region of former plantations where Spanish moss hangs heavy off oak trees, and wild hogs, turkeys, snakes, and pheasants inhabit woodlands. In the lowlands of South Carolina, the Murdoch name used to be associated with all things law and power. Today, the name is more likely to conjure thoughts of greed, abuse of power, mysterious deaths, murder, and lies. And that's thanks largely to the part of the family headed by Alec Murdoch, the man who currently is on trial for allegedly doing in his wife Margaret and son Paul back on the night of June 7th, 2021. Last week, we heard from a data expert who revealed that a month before his death, on May 6th of 2021, Paul, who Margaret called her little detective, sent his father, Alec, a text telling him that they needed to talk because mom, meaning Margaret, discovered pills in his computer bag. Paul said this, when you get here, we have to talk. Mom found several bags of pills in your computer bag. The data expert also testified that on that same day in May, Margaret searched the internet for pill markings in an apparent attempt to identify them, looking up a description for pills that matched some oxycodone tablets. The next morning, Alec texted Margaret, I'm very sorry that I do this to all of you. I love you, end quote. And on May 26th, Margaret searched another pill description. This stuff seems like it might be connected to Paul and Margaret's deaths. Did the little detective and his mother know too much about Alec? Things that could contribute to his downfall. It makes me wonder, if that's true, the irony will be that Paul, acting as a little detective, may have led to his own death, but also helped solve it. I think Paul's two Snapchat videos are as important in this case as Libby German's was in the Delphi case. Paul's 7.56 p.m. Snapchat video is the one that captured his father, Alec, in khaki pants and a seafoam blue polo shirt, proving that he changed clothing at some point on the night of the crime. Paul's 8.44 p.m. Snapchat video captured Alex's voice down at the dog kennels just about six minutes from when the prosecution believes Paul and Margaret were attacked. Although Alec Murdoch has yet to admit being down at the kennels at that time, his own defense team is now admitting he was there six minutes before the carnage. Is six minutes enough time 
to be far enough away from those kennels to not hear shots ring out or to not hear screaming. I'm assuming Paul and Margaret, who we were told by a crime scene investigator last week, were still standing and alert after their initial wounds, would have had time to make some noise, if only for a few seconds and a few screams. And last week, we also heard additional evidence gleaned from Alec Murdoch's Chevy Suburban OnStar system. We heard that when he left his hunting lodge of Moselle at 9.06 p.m. to drive to his parents' home in Almeida, he drove certain sections of the normally 18-minute drive at around 45 miles per hour and others exceeding 80 miles per hour. In the darkness, that rural route is dangerous, especially at high speeds. Not even firefighters and EMTs drive that route that fast. Why did Alex speed that night? The area where he was driving in the 45 mile per hour rate happens to be right around where Margaret's cell phone was discovered in tall grass the day after the crime. The OnStar data also proved that Alec's mother's caretaker, Shelley Smith, was telling the truth when she said Alec was at his parents' home for only 20 minutes on the evening of June 7th, and not the 30 to 40 minutes that Shelley testified Alec told her he was there. The OnStar records also indicated that Alec was parked near some outbuildings on his parents' property for a little while that night. Some believe that if Alec is the perpetrator, then he dumped the saturated clothing he was wearing during the commission of the crime at the parents' Almeida property, and then went back to the property at a later date to get rid of them. Shelley Smith is also the person who testified that days after the crime, Alec showed up at his parents' house around 6.30 a.m., which was completely out of character for him, and he was cradling a bundled-up blue thing in his hand that looked like a blue tarp. Shelley said he went upstairs and then came back downstairs without that item and left without saying a word. When the police finally searched the parents' home months later, they discovered a crumpled blue rain poncho in an upstairs closet. The lining of it was coated in gunshot residue. It's believed that perhaps the weapons used in the crime were wrapped up in that rain poncho at some point. We also now know that when Alec got back to his Moselle hunting lodge and when he drove his truck down to the dog kennels, allegedly to see why Paul and Margaret were not back up at the house, he had exactly 17 seconds, no less, no more, to find the bodies and assess them before dialing 911. That's not a lot of time especially when you tell the 911 operator that you checked your wife and son's pulses and you even tried to turn your son's body over, at which point his cell phone popped out of his pocket and you picked it up, thought about doing something with it, and then put it back. Remember, this is a circumstantial case. So it's not just one piece of evidence that matters. It's the totality of all the circumstantial evidence. For me, the circumstantial evidence is piling up, but my opinion matters not. Neither does yours. 
The only people whose opinions really matter at this point are the 12 jurors sitting on the jury. All Alec Murdoch needs is one of them to decide there's reasonable doubt, and that could trigger a mistrial. Of course, even if Alec Murdoch is found not guilty, he still has to face a hundred financial charges after this trial. I think it's safe to say he's going to spend some time in prison, but we just don't know how long and what exactly for yet. If you listen to the behavior panelist guys, they will tell you that Alec Murdoch's behavior in his first interview on the night of the crime indicates to them that he was terrified during that chat and that he was, in their opinion, being deceptive. All four said their BS meters were way up. They pointed out how Murdoch's shoulders were way up high and his hands and his arms were down by his groin as if trying to protect his crown jewels. The guys also pointed out a noticeable increase in his blink rate, the lack of the grief muscle in his forehead being present, and his fake dry crying. If you head over to Hidden True Crime, they will tell you that Alec Murdoch's addiction issues, his obvious greed, his propensity for breaking the law, and his strange relationship with the truth are most likely the result of deep generational issues. The podcast hosts talked about the Murdoch's deep roots in South Carolina, about a train accident that changed the family's lives forever, and they brought up Randolph Murdoch Sr. He was Alec Murdoch's great-grandfather. Murdoch Sr., founded his own law firm in 1910, fresh out of the University of South Carolina School of Law. And in 1920, he became the solicitor for the 14th Judicial Circuit Court. That position is basically the attorney general. The 14th Judicial Circuit serves five different counties in South Carolina's Low Country, and the Murdochs kept control of that position for almost 86 years, over three generations. That meant the Murdochs had a ton of power and prestige for a very long time. Randolph Murdoch Sr. was a well-respected man whose name peppered the society pages of the local newspapers. Everything was good, until tragedy hit. The Associated Press reported that on Friday, July 19th of 1940, as Murdoch Sr. was leaving a late-night poker game around 1 a.m., his car was crossing a railway about four miles east of Varnville when the car mysteriously stopped in the middle of the crossing. A westbound C and WC freight train was swiftly heading down the tracks at the time. Murdoch Sr. lifted his hand and waved at the oncoming locomotive, the driver later reported during an investigation. Engineer W.W. Bartlett testified that he did not see the car near the tracks until about 40 yards away, and that Murdoch Sr. had his hand raised as though he was waving at the train crew. But when the train got closer, 
the car started up and stopped directly on the tracks. According to an article in the Hampton County Guardian published on July 24th, of 1940, the impact of the train with the car hurled the automobile approximately 900 feet up the track, totally wrecking it, and Murdoch Sr.'s body was found beside the track approximately 150 feet from the crossing. Per the Guardian article, Murdoch Sr. had been suffering from health problems since 1939, and just a few months before the train crash, Murdoch Sr. had been released from the hospital. No one seems to know if alcohol was involved in the crash. Some have speculated that this was an act of self-harm. The Hampton County coroner ruled the death an accident, but of course, that's what the prominent family would have wanted people to think. For a prominent man like Murdoch Sr. to self-harm in such a way was unacceptable. And even if someone suspected that, it had to be kept under wraps. Per the hosts of Hidden True Crime, Murdoch Sr.'s death seems to have been caused by depression. After Murdoch Sr.'s death, his son Randolph Murdoch Jr., who was nicknamed Buster, filed a summons and complaint against the Charleston and Western Carolina freight line. The lawsuit was brought on behalf of Randolph Murdoch Sr.'s widow, Mary, and her children for the wrongful death of Murdoch Sr. The suit alleged that the train was traveling at a high rate of speed and failed to blow a whistle or ring a bell at the Camp Branch crossing where Murdoch Sr. was hit. The suit also alleged that the crossing and its approach was in a rough, washed-out, and dangerous condition, and Murdoch Sr.'s view was obscured by trees and tall underbrush on that foggy night, placing him in sudden, and eminent peril. Buster Murdoch demanded a judgment of $100,000 for the wrongful death of his father, and on September 22, 1941, the case was settled. The amount of the settlement was not disclosed. After that case, the Murdoch family's coffers were richer, and the family had a new specialty— personal injury cases. Thus, what was likely a self-harm scenario was reconfigured by Buster Murdoch into an accident that gained the family money and a new law specialty. Could Alec Murdoch's problems, I mean, I think he has to have some problems, to sink into a 20-year opioid addiction and to embezzle $8.4 million from his own law firm, family, and clients? Could those problems be partially caused by the Murdoch family suffering from generational imposter syndrome? Do they all know that on some level, their reputation as this great, important family in South Carolina, almost like the Kennedys, was built on a foundation of lies and deceit? Did they lie about Murdoch Sr.'s death and blame it not on a self-harm situation, but rather on an accident caused not by Murdoch Sr. himself, but rather by the railroad company to, one, gain a large payout, 
and two, to hide the truth about how Murdoch Sr. died so that their shining reputation would not be tarnished. Kind of sounds like it. And that would mean Alec Murdoch didn't fall far from the family tree when he concocted a scheme to have his housekeeper's sons sue him after their mother's fall at Moselle and subsequent death. In that scheme, Alec Murdoch collected $4.3 million on behalf of the Satterfield boys from his own insurance company and then kept it without giving the poor boys even one cent of it. So the boys lost their mother and then they were taken to the cleaners by Alec Murdoch. If you watch and listen to Alec's 911 call on the night of June 7, 2021 to report Paul and Margaret's deaths and then compare the information he shared on that call with his first, second, and third interviews with the police, there are tons of discrepancies. I did that. I listened to all four of those and took notes. I want to share all the areas where he tells the police different times. Remember, when you tell the truth, your story doesn't change. When your child and your wife die in such a manner, you'd think the times of that night would be etched in your brain. And if on top of that, you're a lawyer, you'd think you'd know to jot down every time and every detail so that you could help the cops find the bad guys. Why can't Alec Murdoch remember the times precisely? Random thought I want to share. Alec's car, rather truck, shows he left his Moselle home at 9.06 p.m. on June 7th. He made the 911 call at around 10.06 p.m. In my mind, all of the times Alec shares with the cops are on the hour mark or half hour mark, as if he had it all carefully mapped out. But it would be too obvious to leave Moselle at 9 p.m. and make the 911 call at 10 p.m., right? That's just a tad too on the hour. I get the feeling Alec Murdoch said to himself, I'll leave Moselle instead at 9.06 p.m. That won't be so obvious. And then all I need to do is be back to Moselle in, say, an hour so that I can make the 911 call at around 10.06 p.m. Did anybody else notice that? By the way, according to SLED Special Agent Peter Rudolski, who testified on Friday about Alec Murdoch's phone data. He said that the records indicated that after Alec dialed 911 to alert the police that his wife and son had been harmed, he opened a group text message with a picture of a woman in a bikini from a friend, and then he googled a restaurant called Wally's or Whaley's in Adesto Beach, around 10.40 p.m. Does it seem strange that Alec would be Googling a restaurant after this horrific event, after his wife and son had just died? Special Agent Rudolfsky said that if he had been in Murdoch's shoes that night, he wouldn't have been on the phone. And I have to agree, at least not on my phone looking up restaurants and checking out people in their swimming suits. A few things are certain in this case. The Murdochs are a troubled family, and their troubles go back 
as long as they've had family members acting as the solicitor of the 14th Circuit Court. Alec Murdoch is a liar, a lawbreaker, and he was a lean, mean, litigating machine. I just wanted to say that line. Will the Murdochs finally be forced to pay for their lies and sins? We shall soon see. The trial resumes tomorrow. The prosecution rested their case on Friday, and according to the independent.co.uk website, the defense is planning to put the disgraced Alec Murdoch on the witness stand sometime this week. So get the popcorn and the Pinot Grigio, because this is about to get even more fascinating than it has been. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, do me a favor, smash that like button, subscribe, leave me a comment, consider a membership, and I'll see you next time. All right, Mr. Murdoch, um, state your full name for me, please. Richard Alexander Murdoch. <clears throat> and spell your last name so I get it correct. M U R D A U G H. All right. And you go by Alec? Yes, sir. And date of birth, Mr. Murdoch? May 27th. 1968. And a good phone number for you. 803-942-1227. And sir, what was your name? Yeah, Danny Henderson. Okay. Um, as I stated, I'm David Owen and uh, Laura Rutland with Collington County, and I'm with SLED. I hate to have to do this. I but, understand. Yeah. I totally yeah. understand. Yeah. So you don't you don't have any problem yeah. with it. So um, just start at the top. Take your time. Um, like when I came back here, mm -hmm. I mean, I pulled up and I could see them, and you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. <laughs> my my boy over there, I could see it was. I could see his brain on his... <laughs> and I ran over to Maggie and uh, actually I think I tried to turn Paul over first um uh you know, I tried to turn him over, and uh, I don't know. I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I 
put it back down really quickly. Um, then I went to my wife, and I, I mean, I could see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> did you touch Maggie at all? I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take. I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, mm -hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I called 911 um, pretty much right away, and she was very good. Um, <clears throat> I talked to her. Um, I told her I was going to get off the phone to call some family members. <coughs> I did that. Um, and, um... How many family members did you call? Anybody? I called my brother Randy. And I called my brother John. And I tried to call a little boy real good friend that's right around the corner from here but i didn't get him okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> what all was around um paul when you walked up blood any any other anything else i mean there were some body mm -hmm. things yes sir i mean like any other evidence i know you said the phone fell out the pocket um but did you see anything else that didn't belong or shouldn't belong or that wasn't part of Paul? No, sir. Not, no, not. The, no, sir. How about Maggie? No, sir. You didn't see anything around them? What made you come out here tonight? Um, I went to my mom's a late stage Alzheimer's patient. My dad's in the hospital. Um, my mom gets anxious when she does. I went to check on them and Maggie. Maggie's a dog lover and okay. she fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's for just a little while. Tried to call her when I left, texted her, no response. Um, When I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. Paul was um, going to be getting set up to plant. Our sunflower seeds got sprayed and died, and he was refiguring to do to plant the sunflower seeds. Okay. So I came back up here, and I drove up and saw and called. <laughs> Had Maggie and Paul been arguing over anything? No. What was their relationship like? Wonderful. Wonderful. How about yours and Maggie's? Wonderful. I mean, I'm sure we had little things here and there, but we had a wonderful marriage, mm -hmm. wonderful relationship. And yours and Paul's relationship? As good as it could be. 